not been with us, uh, we have, we're in a series of messages. We'll be, as I mentioned uh, along the way, going back to our study of Revelation in time, but trying to address this issue of fear and anxiety, uh, do sort of a topical series um, here to kind of bridge the gap for that. And so we're in the midst of that. We're in lesson, this is lesson number six in that series. And for the last uh, last couple of weeks, we've been looking at some of the wrong ways uh, of handling these problems of sinful fear and, and worry. Of course, every society has its ways of addressing fear and worry, which have nothing to do with the gospel uh, or biblical truth or a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we've looked at those sort of uh, substitutes uh, that the, the culture has offered to deal with these problems. The culture certainly has these problems. They see the effects of these issues all around them, and so really from their own uh, uh, man-centered way of thinking and their own depravity, they try to come up with solutions. And we just said that a lot of these solutions, you know, you take the gospel and you take Christ out of the solution, and uh, you'll, you'll find people just spinning their wheels and just putting a Band-Aid on really a, a cancer-type uh, problem. Uh, then we mentioned that even in the church, that many have in the church, unfortunately, adopted false ways of thinking about spiritual growth and, and sanctification, and we looked at some of those uh, counterfeit, counterfeits and the dangers that, that they present, uh, such as legalism and antinomianism, or in some cases, mysticism. And then last Sunday, I brought up this idea of indicatives and imperatives of Scripture and how to keep those things in uh, proper balance. And so uh, I just want to return back to that because I felt like that I got some sort of glazed over looks. Uh, and so I realized sort of after the fact, you know, that I, I may have been throwing out that terminology. And, and, and again, sometimes I've, I'm in these discussions, whether it's with the guys at the church office or some, some cases are seminary students. And in some cases, in counseling situations, but in counseling situations, I mean, I would explain what those things are to people before I just start using that terminology, and I probably didn't do a fair job of that last week. So I just want to back up a little bit and talk about these, these uh, things. So if you're there in Ephesians, uh, let me, just, let me just, just tell you what these things are. First, first of all, indicatives, okay? Uh, the, the indicatives are, are basically f- phrases in Scripture where the verb in, in that particular statement or phrase expresses a simple statement of fact, okay? So it's just, you think of it this way, an indicative just states what is true, okay? Just a reality. So I just want to show you a exam- couple of examples of this, just so you'll have an idea of what we're talking about. Ephesians 1, uh, verse 7 says, this is the New American Standard, in him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Okay, so it, to just boil it down, to sort of simplify it, a little bit like you call on some of our, our, our Greek guys in our Greek classes, but when you see that, that verb, we have, this is what we call, it's just a present active indicative. Okay, it's just, and this is just a statement of fact. Okay, there's not a question about this. There's not some sort of command to follow. It's just saying this is what is true of us. That in Christ, we have redemption. Okay, and now you go on beyond these verses, there's lots of things that we have, and Paul will go on to explain even even more of those things and what he means by the riches of his grace, because that's a huge, that's kind of an umbrella for a lot of different things. Nevertheless, this is a fact of us if we are, it is true of us if we are believers in Christ. All right, flip over Ephesians 2. We see this in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Uh, verse 4, he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So we have this, this verb, the, word, the verb that's translated there is made, made us alive together. That's an aorist active indicative. Okay, so again, it's just talking about the form of that verb that's just, just stating a plain, a plain fact. Okay, now the interesting thing is that when you get us particularly into the epistles, and, and in Paul's writings especially, what you'll find is that the first part of those letters or those books are front-loaded with a lot of indicatives. Okay? So in other words, Paul is making, there's an effort made to say, these things are true of you, 
or these things are true of the world, or these things are true of God, before getting to the part where it says, and therefore you must do these things, right? So when you get to, for instance, Ephesians uh, chapter 4, you see this transition. You see it in Romans chapter 12. You see this transition where you go from this part of the book, this section of the letter, which is mainly stressing indicatives, over to the imperatives. Now, the imperatives then would be a phrase or statement where the verb expresses a command. For example, we see this over in Ephesians chapter 5. So flip over there. Ephesians 5, you'll notice verse 1. Okay, this is a present, middle, or passive imperative. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk, that's a present active imperative, walk in love just as Christ also loved. Now, this is an, this is an indicative, right? This is aorist active indicative. Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So, you'll notice how these things kind of work together, right? There's a command, Okay, we're to be imitators of God, uh, we're to walk in love, but there's something that comes before that, right? I mean, if we just launch out there and say, we're just supposed to love people, well, but what's the motivation for that, right? What motivates you to walk in the light? What motivates you to love, love other people? What motivates you to, to be an imitator of God? Oh, don't forget this part, that Christ loved you, Right? So that's important for you to know Christ loved you before you rush out and start trying to figure out how to love other people, right? Because what's going to happen is if you don't have that gospel motivation, you're going to run out of steam, right? You're going to run out of fuel. You're going to be trying to love people and you're going to get frustrated and you're going to give up on it, right? And you may even turn to repaying evil for evil. Why? Because you don't understand all that God has done for you in Christ and the fact that Christ gave himself up for you, which is really what love is all about, right? It's, just, it's, an, it's, an, act, it's an act of sacrifice. It's, an, it's a volitional act. And it's saying, listen, Christ made a decision to give himself up. <laughs> That's what it means to love other people, right? So it's not what the world thinks about loving others. This is an issue of sacrifice. This is an issue of your will, choosing to give up yourself for others. This, it says, is an offering and a sacrifice that Christ made that was acceptable, right? It was a fragrant aroma. So what we've been saying in this is that there are statements in Scripture to be believed, and there are requirements in Scripture to be obeyed, okay? And we can't get the one before the other. So that's one problem, is we sometimes get the imperatives before we get the indicatives, right? So that that can be a train wreck. The other mistake we can make is you can just not address one of them at all, right? So it's not a matter of which one you get in, in which order. It's just that you don't even notice the others, right? So you're all about the indicatives. You're all about the things that God has done for you, but you don't ever talk about the commands, right? Or all you see in Scripture is do this, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that. And you're thinking, well, that, I mean, that's just, that sounds like law. That sounds like we're just coming back under a bunch of commands. Well, not really, because Everything's been changed, right? Things have been completely reoriented because of the indicatives, right? So part of it is we, we, we get them in reverse order sometimes. Sometimes we just totally neglect the other or we separate the two so that we somehow think that it's okay to have one and not the other. And again, we tend to, for different reasons, gravitate to one or the other. But let me just, let me just illustrate this. This is, a, this is a, um, an illustration that I'll use in our counseling training to kind of um, kind of describe this, and so I'm going to put it up here, and, and you don't have to feverishly write, because if you want this, I'll send it to you via email, if you'll email me. But what we're saying is that we have to find a balance, and this is the way the scriptures present this, we have to find a balance between the comfort of justification and the call to sanctification, okay? We have to find a balance between our, the, the grace of God the grace of our acceptance with God and the grace of conformity to Christ, right? So we have the indicatives and we have the imperatives. Now down here I've got on the bottom, again, an indicative, a factual statement to believe. For instance, Romans 8, 1, therefore there is now no condemnation. That's important to know because he's going to talk about in verse 13 about putting to death the deeds of the body, right? Which is an ongoing requirement to obey. 
but you've got to know about your condemnation, right? Or, or, or no condemnation in your life in order to successfully obey this command. And yet this truth about you not having any condemnation is meant to lead you to a command. You with me? Everybody? Okay, you're clicking? All right, so we call it, this is the balanced gospel, right? And what we say sometimes is the imperative of do for man is always based upon the indicative of done by God. So the do is based upon the done. Christ has done this, therefore you are to, to do these things. All right, now what happens when we get these out of balance? What happens when we overemphasize the comfort of acceptance with God and underemphasize those commands to obey? We end up with what uh, the theologians call antinomianism, right? This is what you might simplify it as justification without sanctification or grace without obligation. Right? That we're just accepted and we're forgiven and then there, now there's nothing to obey. Okay? You'd have a hard time getting through the New Testament and, 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 and rationalizing that with all of the, even in the New Testament, all the New Testament commands that we have. So that's one error, right? Push too far down on this side, that's what you get. Okay? The other error would be that we focus too much on, overemphasize the call to obedience, but we don't emphasize enough the indicatives, Right? We don't emphasize the comfort and balance that out. What do we end up with? We end up with a sanctification without justification. We end up doing this thing called sanctification, this striving to be holy in our lives, but we're not keeping in mind our position in Christ and all the riches of His grace, right, that precede that. And so we end up with obligation without grace. And in, in that way, we, we sometimes just, again, these are just very sim- simplified uh, descriptions of this, but you might call it uh, legalism, right? Just not understanding your, your justified position. And so you're doing all these things thinking that your obedience and your love for God is what's keeping you saved, right? It's like this is the thing that's keeping the wheels of salvation turning. It's all on you, right? And you become very performance-based, perfectionistic, all these kind of things, because you're not resting in the grace of God. So again, this, this, is, where, this is where we want to be. Right, and this is what you find in, in Scripture. So, we understand that that it that it is all of the indicative in terms of its power and its source. That the grace of God in the indicatives is the ground and the power of the commands that follow. But to imagine that there is then nothing for us to do or obey or live out is imbalanced. Okay, so if we overemphasize the indicative. We could, come away, we could come away with this conclusion that no striving is necessary or that striving is always a form of legalism, right? So what happens sometimes when you get in discussions and you're talking to people about their Christian life and, and spiritual growth and you start pushing the commands on them, they sometimes want to rush to the fact that you're being legalistic, right? They say, well, oh, that's, that's legalism, you know, to say that you have to do this or you have to avoid that. That's legalism. Not necessarily. <laughs> that depends on what we know about the indicatives, right? As long as we're fairly describing that and, and understanding that and believing that, then it's, it's, not, it's not legalism. On the other hand, if we overemphasize the striving and not the indicative, we don't balance that out, it is very possible. In fact, it's, 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 it's just about a guarantee that we'll become a, a moralistic type person who is not really moralistic. It's like we'll, we'll be outwardly, we'll appear to be moral, uh, have, have morals, but it'll really just be a self-righteousness, right? I mean, <laughs> because if you're just obeying these commands and you're really not resting in the work of Christ, I mean, it's all about you, right? So it's going to end up being... Self-righteousness, uh, self-righteous attitudes, self-justification, or even in some, we might say self-atonement, right? You're, you're actually doing what you're doing in a way to compensate for your sin. So people, again, get into this habit. They, they sin, and then they go and they do something good, right? So they sin, they have a guilty conscience, and then they, they, they open their Bible, and they, or they go to church or do something religious, and they're not really grasping the, the truths there uh, from that sort of the, the indicative side of things. And so it just becomes self-effort and, and self-atonement. And, and here's the thing, folks, both are unbiblical, right? Both of these things are unbiblical if you get them out of, out of balance, okay? And in either case, it's always a lack of faith, right? It's, we said this last time, it's always an issue of unbelief because 
True faith yields to both the indicatives and the imperatives. True faith does, right? True Christian faith embraces both sides of this, right? Not just one. So, we said this. We, we can change, right? I don't care. We're talking about specifically anxiety and worry and fear and those things. I'm just saying, folks, no matter what it is, if it's that or it's any other sin that you want to put in, 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 that, in, that, in that place... We can overcome the most stubborn of habits. We can grow in Christ's likeness, but we can't do that if we're sitting back and just sort of waiting from a hand of heaven to come down and to deliver us, right? We can't just sit back passively as believers and think we're going to overcome this issue of fear. Uh, if we're trying some kind of shortcut, which we're, we're always, we're really good about those things. I, I met with a guy for counseling yesterday morning talking about anxiety. We're talking about this very thing. And I was just trying to tell him... <laughs> There's no shortcuts, right? I mean, you're going to have to learn the truth. You're going to have to believe it and embrace it. You've got to embrace the indicative. So I told him we're going to talk about the gospel, but we're not going to just talk about what Christ did. We're going to talk about the imperatives that follow that. We're gonna, all that's going to come in. We're going to hold you accountable to that, to that over time. But don't make sanctification an idol. Because what we want to do is we want to speed up sanctification, right? We're like, I just want to be done with the fear thing. I just want to be done with the anxiety issue. I've been dealing with this for 10 years. I don't want to do that anymore. And so people start to do the very things we're talking about, but they, they get impatient and they want to become immediately like Christ in these areas, and that's not the way it works. And, and that's why a lot of people, I think, are still spinning their wheels is because they think this is just snap your fingers and you're like Jesus and you never have to deal with this again when the reality is you, these kinds of struggles may plague you for, for the rest of your life. You may be a person that is just has a disposition, just a propensity to worry. Now, I'm not saying it's acceptable to do that. I'm just saying you might have a propensity for that. You might have a propensity towards other sins. Right? I mean, every, it, we all have that to, uh, of some kind. So this thing may continue to come around, and the victory over that, it's going to require diligence in these things. Right? You're going to have to be patient. You're going to have to avoid the shortcuts. You're going to have to stop leaning on the external things. Uh, again, there, there's some things that we put into our lives, some, some structure and some accountability that's good for us, but, but that alone is not enough, right? I mean, I, I describe those external things sometimes as like guardrails. When you're on the side of a mountain and you're driving your car, it's, it's always nice to have a guardrail there in case you happen to take your eye off the road and you kind of drift over, right, in, into the, off the side of the road. But listen, folks, if you want to go through the guardrail, that guardrail is not strong enough to keep you from going over the cliff if you turn into it 90 degrees and hit the accelerator, right? It's not designed for that. It's not designed to completely safeguard your life from sin. It's there as a help, but you've got to do some other things in order to ensure a safe, safe journey, safe travel. The same is true of sanctification. So we've got to be careful about those external things and, of, and of course, uh, be very on guard about trusting in our own strength. This has to be a spirit filled, walking by faith in the truth. Okay, so it's all there. It's Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13. We looked at this last time. It's God working in you, but you're working it out, right? It's both. It's not just God living his life through you as if you're just some completely passive agent, right? It is God's work in you, and yet you're commanded to work it out, okay? And we just got to keep those things together and not make them enemies, right? They're friends, those two truths are friends. In fact, if you even took that verse in Philippians that, about God working in you to willing to work for his good pleasure and said, see, that is just Christ sort of like passively kind of, you're, just, you're just, just sort of sitting there, right, basking in grace, and Christ is just infusing your life and just doing all these wonderful things in your life, this obedience. Through, no, it doesn't work that way. If that were the case, look at the next verse, because the very next verse is a command to not complain. Don't grumble. That's an imperative, right? That's not, don't let Jesus grumble through you, <laughs> right? Jesus doesn't, he doesn't do that, okay? I'm just saying, in light of what Christ has done in you and gives you the power to do right now, your sanctification, he's empowering you, but you have to do what? Stop grumbling, right? I mean, it's just that clear. You can't get around that, okay? So we've got to keep these things together. All right, so... This issue of fear, it has everything to do with our faith. Let me just catch us up here on our notes a little bit. Um, it has everything to do with our faith. 
And there are some key truths that I think we have to believe at the outset, and I want to cover three of these today. So basically what we're going to do the rest of our time today is I'm going to give you three things that you kind of need to have in your mind uh, in view at the very outset of this battle or this, this struggle with fear. And then we're going to follow this next time with I'm going to give you a kind of a grocery list of things. This is going to be probably 14 or 15 different sort of very practical steps. Uh, and again, the reason I've taken time to do this is because... I don't mind giving people the practical how-to steps. I just don't want them to, to think that's what this is all about, that it's just, just give me the steps, because that's what people want, right? Just give me the 15 things I'm supposed to do so I can stop fearing, right? So I can stop being anxious. If you don't get this stuff at the beginning and understand this as a foundation, then the steps aren't going to help you very much, okay? But we do need to get down to those practical things. So we'll cover those things in detail next time. We'll have to hit them pretty rapid fire to get through that. Uh, But let me just give you these three key truths that I think sort of set us up for that kind of very practical outworking of of these principles. Number one, you must believe there is a battle raging. You must believe there is a battle raging, right? We said this last Sunday, the appetites of the flesh are not passive, right? They are in us. We're talking about that unredeemed part of our old, old self, our old humanity, And Galatians says that they wage war against the Spirit in us. The text also says in Galatians that God is just as opposed to your appetites as your appetites are to the Spirit, right? So God, through His Spirit, is at war with your appetites. You have to understand that, right? You have to believe that. If you don't believe that there is a battle going on every day in your Christian life, you are already in trouble, right? If you think that the Christian life is just like a Christian vacation or a Christian uh, social club or a Christian playground, you're never going to conquer fear in your life. You're never going to overcome anxiety or really any other sin in, in, in in any kind of a pattern in, in your Christian walk. If you don't understand that when you wake up in the morning, this, this is a battle, right? The, the battle begins, right? So you've got to understand that. Right. And, and unfortunately, some people don't even believe there's a threat uh, or people wake up thinking that the main threat is something out there rather than this right here. Right. So they may wake up and they may sense, yeah, this is a this is a warfare. This is a this is a battle zone. I've got to get my stuff together and I got to get prepared to go out into the world. Right where all that stuff is taking, where that's where the battle's taking place, and I'm saying, no, there's a battle out there, right? There's lots of of of, of skirmishes and and there's warfare going on out there, but I'm saying the the war begins when you when you become conscious, like in the morning, like like that moment when your your eyes start to, you know, I mean, it happened to me three times. I kept, the alarm kept going off this morning. <laughs> My wife's like, get up, and she always like, can you? Why multiple alarms? I don't know. I just it's just a thing. I do. I like 15 minutes later, I set another one. Then 15 minutes later, I set another one. She's like, just just set the last one. Don't put me through that. Because she wakes up and then goes back to sleep. Wakes up, goes back to sleep. So, so I'm saying that's when the war begins, right? It wakes up. I mean, it starts the minute that you open your eyes, right? And you start to think about, guess what? What do you start to think about? You. That's what you start to think about. I mean, you don't wake up saying, I wonder about those missionaries and how they're doing over in Croatia and Hong Kong. You know, or I wonder about this thing going on at the church. It's, you typically wake up and you immediately begin to mentally go through your schedule, right? How your day is going to start, what you have to do, what you should have probably done last night or the day before, but you, did, you failed to do. Right. And so you, you procrastinated on that. And now, you know, you got to knock this thing out before you even get started. Right. You're already beginning to orient your day around the things that you think about and the plans that you have and all that. I'm saying that's when the battle begins. OK. Now, Scripture's clear. We have a we have a threefold enemy. Right. We do have uh, the devil. Right. The, the slanderer. Uh, we do have the world. OK. So this is this is the the cosmos. And first John talks about this. It's not. It's not the people out in the world. It's really, uh, it's, it's the philosophies, the mentality of the world, the philosophies of the world, all of the isms of the world, uh, all of those things that come against uh, the Lord and His wisdom. It's worldly wisdom. So we have that to deal with. But then we have this thing called the flesh, which we mentioned and is brought up there in, in the book of Galatians and in other places. And this is that 
The best way I know how to describe that is this is your autonomous self. This is this, that. It's that part of you that just wants what you want, when you want it, how you want it. Okay? It's, it's that, that independent, autonomous self. And here's the thing. You do have the devil and you do have the world, right? Those are, those are two of your enemies. But those two enemies, if you think about the way this works, those two enemies always appeal to the third enemy, right? The, the world appeals to the flesh, right? The devil, the adversary, appeals to the flesh. In fact, I brought this up in, a, in our conflict series uh, months ago, I think. Uh, Deepak Reju up at Capitol Hill Baptist Church wrote a, wrote a blog about this, just saying that, you know, and in, in, he was talking about the conflict we have in marriage relationships, but he just said, you know, we're so quick to blame the devil. He said, but quite honestly, we actually give the devil a lot of material to work with <laughs> at the very beginning. Like, honestly, the devil's not out there. Sometimes he's out there destroying marriages. No, actually, probably what's happening is in most cases, he's just sitting back laughing because we're destroying our own marriages. Why are we doing that? Because of the flesh, right? We're living for ourselves, right? We, we're not putting other, our, our spouse before us. We're, we're elevating our desires and turning our desires into needs and demands. That's what's causing the conflict. And he says, listen, we're so quick to blame him. He's like, and he lists like, here's 10 things we're doing in our marriages that he's just sitting back, not even having to really be involved in that because we're, we're battling each other, right? We're tearing ourselves apart. And so the devil appeals to our flesh. The world and its philosophies and messages appeal to our flesh. And we know that the world is against us. Again, we're not minimizing the fact that the devil's against us. We're not minimizing the fact that the world is against us. 1 John 3.13 says this, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised about that. Right? And you can go back to what Jesus, back in the Gospel of John, where Jesus told the disciples this. Right? That's no, no shock, right? In fact, Peter in his letter, first, first letter, says that the world is surprised that as a Christian that you no longer run with them, right? They're, they're surprised that you, as a believer, now no, no longer run, run with them into the same, and this is in chapter 4, 1 Peter, into the same excesses of dissipation, right? They're surprised that you no longer uh, are living for sensuality and that you're no longer living for your own selfish lusts and drunkenness and lawlessness. And it says in that passage that because, the, because of the fact that you don't run with them any longer, they malign you, right? They, they attack you. They come against you because they don't like the fact that you don't run with them anymore into those things. And yes, the devil is against you because in First Peter, you go another chapter over, chapter 5, verse 8, He says this, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So again, Peter in his his first epistle, he doesn't ignore the threat of the world. He doesn't ignore the threat of, of the devil. But before he brings those things up, notice what he says. And you can turn there if you want to. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. 1 Peter 2, 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Okay? You have a threefold enemy. You have the world, you have the devil, and you have the flesh. And in this verse, Peter's calling his readers to deal with this issue of the flesh. He's calling for inner, really inner self-discipline. Now, you'll notice back up in verse 1... He mentions in chapter 2, verse 1, he's already brought this up, this, this sort of, you might call it a, a decisively putting away of the old, old evils, right? He says back in verse 1, therefore putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So he's, he's, he's describing, he, he goes on, the, the imperative in that section is about craving the, the milk of the word. You'll notice it there. Um, in the next verse, craving or longing for the pure, pure milk of the word. But, but, but basically what he's saying is before that can be realized in your Christian life, you have to have already decisively put these old things away. So what's going on in, this, in verse 1 is there's got to be this, you might call it sort of a once and for all turning away from these things. So you've got to have this, this first, you've got to have this definitive break with all of those things that would hinder spiritual, spiritual growth. And then he gives this 
this picture of someone who's, you, you might think of it as sort of flinging off a, a badly stained or an infected garment, right? Like there's got to be a point where it, it, it's, it's like you just, as a reality in your life, you, that old, those, that old man, right, that autonomous self, those, those desires, it's like you make a decision to take that and like an old garment, throw it off, right? But that's not the end, right? That decision must be made, but then down in verse 11, what Peter describes in verse 11 is the importance of maintaining that posture in, a, in, a, in your daily practice. So there's both this sort of definitive putting off these things, and then you're craving and longing for the pure milk of the word. And then he goes on to talk about your position, a lot of these indicatives about who you are as God's holy people and chosen race. But then he gets back to this particular imperative and says there's something that's still needed in a daily way in your life and, and this, this sort of constant need in your Christian life to pay attention to the condition of your inner man. Right? And, and we know this, we know this, right? The, the, the reality is that even though a, a believer has been freed from the slavery of sin, there is still a sinward pull or a tendency to stray in our Christian lives. And so every Christian, Peter says, has a responsibility to abstain. The, the word is a word that means to stay distant from, uh, or to avoid, or to keep from, or to be to be literally to holding yourself off from something, right? You're to be abstaining from fleshly lusts, or it says there, I think, in the ESV, passions of the flesh, which is a, a, this, this term for lust is, a, is just a term that means intense or strong cravings or desires. In fact, you'll see it back in chapter 1, verse 14, Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former, he calls them here, former lusts, which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So there Peter refers to them as former lusts, or you might say they're sinful desires that believers once pursued before Christ, B.C., right? So this is B.C. This is before Christ in your life, right? There were these things that these passions and these desires that you were that you were pursuing that were that Satan was applauding and that the world was cheering, right? Those are the things. Former lust, right? You're to abstain from those. Not only were the things that you pursued before Christ, but they were things that ens- that, that were enslaving, right? These were things that were enslaving before people were regenerated, before they were made new. And so here in chapter 2, verse 11, Peter describes them as fleshly lusts. So he's talking about all those unbridled impulses that stem from the self-centeredness of man's fallen nature, those selfish and deceitful desires that operate without consideration for God's will. Again, man-centered desires, desires that have not been brought under the control of Christ and the Spirit. And this, again, is not necessarily... we. most of the time when we hear lust, we think of something that's sensual or sexual, but that's not the case. Uh, and in fact, uh, this, this, isn't, this doesn't, isn't limited to sexual sins or even sins of the body uh, or sensual indulgences. This is really a word that, that, that encompasses and circumscribes all of those things, right? All of those cravings associated with the entire nature of man as a fallen being. Sinful and unbridled dishonest speech, gossip, slander, jealousy, debauchery, loose living, idolatries, self-righteous attitudes, pride, fear, anxiety. Peter is simply stating the fact that believers are able and expected to hold themselves off from these things because they are no longer slaves of unrighteousness and sin is no longer their master. Now, Peter continues, and you notice what he says. He says, it is critical that you do this, that you put these things away, that you abstain from these things because, and then notice the phrase, because fleshly lusts wage war against the soul, which in this context is not really a hand, it's, it's not the word that would be used to describe a hand-to-hand, hand-to-hand combat, but a much larger thing, right? We're talking about a planned military expedi- expedition against a military objective. 
And he's not simply talking about some sort of antagonistic attitude. He's talking about there is active enmity and hostility. There is a relentless and malicious aggression toward your soul. And so Peter is exhorting his readers not not to, to yield to unbridled desire because these desires do not simply fight against a man's soul. They wage a war against his soul with the aim of destroying it. Again, this is, folks, this is what we're, I mean, this is the life we live, right? This is the reality that we wake up to every day, right? Fleshly desires waging war against your soul. We have to understand that. We have to understand that. These enemies engaging in a campaign against the soul like an army with the intent of capturing the soul, enslaving the soul, and destroying the soul. It is a search and destroy mission to conquer the soul of the believer. So fleshly lusts, they're deadly, right? That's Peter's point. They're deadly, and so he urges these Christians, followers of Christ, to abstain from them, abstain from these sinful desires that are the enemies of sanctification and desires designed to impede your growth in grace. So for your own spiritual welfare, you, you have to bring your desires under the lordship of Christ. Right? This, is, this is a battle, this is war. You don't, you don't nurture these desires, you restrain them, you discipline them, you control them. You don't let them control you or else you will suffer defeat and great harm. This is from Christopher Love. Christopher Love was a, a Welsh Presbyterian Preacher, and this is out of his work called The Mortified Christian. He said, A truly mortified man is like a warrior. He will either kill or be killed. He will kill sins, or else his sin will kill him. Now examine yourselves in this. Are you only fencers to sport and play with your lusts, or are you warriors who fight with an implacable, which means unforgiving or unrelenting, unsparing opposition against sin? Do you only give a slight scare to sin? Or have you given it a deadly wound? So if sinful fear is a problem for you, if you find yourself being driven and controlled by fear, or if you find yourself gripped with anxiety, the first thing you've got to understand and embrace is this, that you are in a battle every day. Again, if you don't recognize that battle, if you just wake up and you get your cup of coffee and you get dressed and you head out the door and you begin to knock out all those things on your to-do list and it's all about your agenda... And all that, you're, you're, already, you're already losing the battle at that point. And, and that's why when anxiety and fear and those things come, again, I've mentioned this, it, it, it seems as if those things kind of pounce on you. And you're like, where did that come from? And I'm saying part of the reason why we describe it that way is because we're not vigilant, right? It's like, I mean, you only feel like something kind of surprised you and jumped out of the bushes if you were just coasting along not realizing there was any threat there, Right? But if you're walking cautiously and you're walking with sobriety and self-discipline in your life, you're, you're ready for that, aren't you? I mean, if you understand the battle between those desires and the Spirit of God in you, if you realize that warfare is taking place, you're not knocked off balance when those things come. You're ready for it, right? And so I'm saying that this, again, this isn't a sort of a step-by-step thing. I'm just saying this is a mentality, a mindset that you have to have as a Christian to overcome any sin, no matter what it is. You've got to understand your life is a theater of war, right? It's going on all the time. And again, it's not spiritual spooky stuff. It's not, you know, uh, uns, you know we, we don't have, we're not going to see demons and angels and smell the sulfur of hell. And we're not, it's not all of that stuff. It's not, it's not some Hollywood thing, right? We're talking about sinful, selfish desires in your heart, right? And how those things oppose the spirit of God and the truth. And your role in that process of killing sin and mortifying sin, which we will talk about and how, how to do that in more detail. So that's the first thing. If you don't get that, right, you don't understand that you're in a battle every day. If you don't, understand, if you don't believe that, you're already defeated, okay? The second thing is this. Uh, you have to believe. You must believe that you do not have to sin. You must believe that you do not have to sin. Going back to our passage in Galatians 5, verse 16 Where Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and I mean, you ought to underline this, and you will not, you ought to underline those words, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. That's a guarantee. 
Okay? If you're saved, you have the power of the Spirit to do what is right, but you have to know that and you have to believe that. Every Christian has the ability by the new life and the power of the Spirit to exercise restraint and overcome temptation. You say, well, I need a vision first. No, you don't. You don't need a vision, all right? But I need some kind of spiritual experience, right? I need some, some sort of confirmation from God to be able to, to overcome this sin. No, you don't. You don't need that. Uh, but I need, I need some sort of strict man-made, I need some man-made rules, right, to kind of hem me in and, and keep me in line. No, you don't. You don't need that. Okay? Why? Because you have the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why. You have Christ. And there is nothing defective in Him. There is neither reason nor excuse for looking outside to someone else or to something extra. In fact, that is what the book of Colossians is all about. Turn over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. This is what Colossians really is. If you wanted to summarize Colossians 2, my summary of Colossians 2 is is Christ is preeminent and He's enough. (laughs) Right? He is preeminent. There's no one above Christ. Secondly, He's enough. You don't need anything else. It's not Christ plus something. Right? You don't add anything to this. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to read, I'm just going to read this chapter. We don't, we were not even going to even discuss it really because there's so much here. I just want you to hear what the text says. It's absolutely uh, mind-blowing what he says about Christ and how what Christ has done for you is enough to empower you to overcome sin in your life. Verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in the body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. And just, just briefly, what, what's he saying? He's saying that all that that you'll you'll never grow by moving on and away from Christ to other things. What you need to do is grow deeper in Christ and deeper into the the gospel. And so he uses this analogy, this sort of word picture here of a of, of roots spreading out into a soil. Uh, into soil in which, in which it has been planted, or a building sort of being raised up on this foundation, right? You, you, you stay put, right? You don't move away from these things. He's saying, don't let someone take you away from Christ. Don't move away from the gospel. That is not how you grow. Don't look for something else in your life, okay? Verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh... By the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive to get... Notice all these indicatives, folks. I mean, it's like, there's, you don't see any commands, you know, many commands in this, in this passage. There are commands about be, being careful, about being deceived, but then notice what's surrounding all of that, Right? When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. 
Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joint and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men? These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. <laughs> it's not going to help you. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of time. In fact, it's not just a waste. It's deadly because you're going back, right? You're going back. You have a sufficient Savior. You have a sufficient Spirit. Ephesians 1.3 says that the Father has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 2 Peter 1 says that, 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 that grace, he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. You have everything, according to Peter, to live a godly life. Or think about it this way you begin your Christian life with everything. You begin your Christian life with everything. What you're to be doing now is growing into what you already have and where you already are. Totally different way of thinking about this. This isn't about getting more, right? I got to have this and I got to have that to be able to grow in Christ. No, you need to embrace what the Word of God says about your life by faith, embrace the indicatives and embrace the imperatives. And know that if you do that, right, th- this is the path to victory over fear, anxiety, worry, any sin, right? You have to know that you have those resources and that you do not have to sin. You do not have to sin. Let me just give you this. Well, I'll have to come back to that. All right, I'll, I'll make a couple of notes. We'll come back and I have a quote I wanted to read to you from a book that our elder board is reading right now called True Devotion. Um, so I'll, I'll, just, I'll just bring that up in the uh, uh, next time we're together. So you have the Spirit, you have the sufficient Word, you have the resources, you have Christ, you have a new master, right? You have a, a, not, not a, a, a mean, cruel master, right? You have a good master, a gracious master. You do not have to yield to the flesh. You do not have to be afraid. You do not have to fret. And when you do, as we said last week, it's not because the flesh is too strong, as if the flesh could ever be stronger than God. Rather, it's that we are not walking by the Spirit and not being controlled by the Spirit, which we are commanded to do. We are commanded to walk by the Spirit. All right, let me just give you this third quickly, and then like I said, we'll come back and uh, summarize this next time and then move on. That tells us this. This is the third thing I think we need to know going into this battle. Uh, You must believe that you are not passive in this process. You just have to believe that, right? You have to believe that you are not passive in the sanctification process. It is all by God's power and enabling, but you are commanded to do the work and make the effort. Believing God's word and yielding to his command. As we said, God is working in us, but He is working in us in order that we may work it out. Romans 1.5, Paul says, Through Jesus Christ we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His namesake, among whom you are also called the called of Christ Jesus. He's just simply saying, that's what, I mean, faith is meant to produce obedience. It's, it's designed to move us on to obedience. Yes, grace is unmerited favor. It is the fact that, that God has this pleasing disposition toward us, but it's more than that. Grace is also power. It is divine strength given to us as Christians so that we can live in ways that please and honor God. 
And God is just as concerned about your holiness as He is your forgiveness. You hear that? God is just as concerned about your holiness as He is your forgiveness. These are inseparable ideas. Holiness is impossible without grace, and grace always produces holiness. So God is calling us to obey, but He's also promising that we will have the power to accomplish this obedience. That is to say, we need God's forgiving grace, but we also need His transforming grace to change us so that we can be like Him in His love and holiness. You can be thankful as a believer. You can stop grumbling. You can be pure. You can be humble. You can be trusting. You can subdue your desires for comfort and ease. You can mortify sin, and you can be a peacemaker. How? By His grace. By His grace. But you have to believe that. You have to believe that. You have to believe in Jesus' grace to change you. And you have to believe that in Jesus and by the Spirit, you have the power to change. And you have to know how the Holy Spirit works through your spiritual efforts. Efforts to stand your ground in obedience. Efforts to turn your earthly thoughts to the mind of Christ. Efforts to understand, believe, and appropriate truth. Efforts to imitate and display God's character. And efforts to be conformed to the holiness of Christ. So those three things... I said that this kind of summarizes a lot of what we've been sort of sprinkling in along the way. But I I think, folks, if people, you can give them, like I said, we're going to walk through those practical steps, but you can give them those practical steps. If they don't understand these three things, like I said, they're already going backwards, right? They're not going to have victory in their life over these temptations when they don't understand this, when they don't understand there's a battle raging, when they don't understand that they have the power through the Spirit and in Christ to say no to ungodly things and to deal with the flesh, or if they somehow think that sanctification is just letting go and letting God. They think that somehow Christ is just going to live this thing out through them. If that were the case, then what are you going to do with all the imperatives? What are you going to do with all those commands? And I'm saying if we get this indicative and this imperative thing, and it's, we understand the need for the balance, and we understand the importance of the indicatives preceding the imperatives, and then also the need to go not just sit and rest on our indicatives, <laughs> right, but move out in faith and actually yield our will to those commands, that's a beautiful thing. It's, it's a powerful thing to see people, and I've seen it over and over again, that have struggled with fear and anxiety for, like I said, sometimes since childhood. And they're in their 40s and their 50s, and they're, and they're believers in Christ. And they start putting these things into practice and, 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 and start really understanding what faith is all about and what it means to be empowered by the Spirit of God and to actually lay hold of these things and understand their involvement in their own sanctification. You get all those things working, and then you give them the principles, the practical how-to steps. I mean, they, they just start, it just starts clicking for them. And this thing that was a life-entangling, life-dominating thing in their life for so long is all of a sudden not so life-entangling. Not to say that they never are afraid or they never worry. I'm just saying they begin to have consistent victory when they can keep these things in mind and they can consistently apply those, those practical steps. So we'll come back. I'll bring this quote up, and then we'll jump right into the practical. We'll try to say we'll rifle through 14 or 15 of them, and hopefully you'll understand that going through it that fast and sort of... Uh, kind of bulleted, you won't go, well, that, you know, that just sounds like a formula. Uh, no, 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 go back. <laughs> go back, right? This is a personal issue between you and the Lord. This is about a relationship with Christ. It's not about a how-to thing, but we got to get to that. And hopefully you'll put all that together uh, once we get to that place. Okay, folks, enjoy the Lord's day.